0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today we are joined by Susan Heffernan. Based in Shanghai, Susan is a strategic advisor for brands in the health, wellness, beauty, and lifestyle sectors. She has a track record of growing profitable international businesses while navigating the complexities of the China market. She is also the CEO of Suzar a design-led production company specializing in the design, development, manufacturing, and supply of bespoke art pieces, props, and visual display accessories. On today's show, we talk to Susan about her experience of operating a business in China, as well as her current role as a strategic advisor for companies that want to enter the Chinese market. We dive deep into the difficulties of conducting business in China, how IKEA's business model has influenced the market, the process of sourcing materials for manufacturing, and the current trends in the furniture and home decor industry in China. Susan also offers her predictions regarding the future of the health and wellness industry in the Asia-Pacific region, and the home and house space in China over the next three to five years. Enjoy.
1: When I first came to China and I was jogging, I was like some outside, I was like some kind of alien. You know, you would be jogging around the street and people would just stop and stare at you. And now if you go out, now when you walk outside, there's people jogging at all times of the day or night. It's it's not even sort of a, a strange occurrence anymore. It's everywhere. And things like gyms and yoga studios, weights boxing all these kind of things are absolutely everywhere so i i think that it's going to go really grow rapidly because of the awareness of health and also preventative health looking after yourself because you don't want to get sick and you want to stay young and youthful a lot to do with the recognition that looking after your internal body will make you look better
0: brought to you by WPIC marketing and technologies. Susan, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Todd. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share with yourself and your listeners.
0: It's exciting to have you uh, as we usually do. Where are you sitting today that we're recording you from?
1: Yeah, today I'm actually in Brisbane, Australia.
0: You're in Brisbane, Australia. Now, is that yeah. where you usually reside?
1: I am um, all over the place at the moment, between, mostly between China and Australia.
0: Okay. Now, where would you hang your hat if you're in China? Shanghai. Shanghai. Okay. So we yeah. have that in common. All right.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Can you give it, us, give the listeners a quick introduction into, your, into yourself and the work that you do?
1: Yeah, I'm obviously I'm Australian, but I have lived and worked more than half my life in China. Uh, my first sort of debut to China was on an Australian language scholarship and I ended up in Nanjing Language Institute in Nanjing a long time ago. And that was then followed on by a longer language scholarship with Beijing University in Beijing. I suppose when I look back, These two experiences were really fundamental in what I would say was my future success in China. Obviously back then as a foreign student uh, was quite different to what it would be if you were entering China now as a foreign student. Um, During the past two decades, I spent most of my career um, founding and operating my own business, uh, which was in the design and manufacture of retail displays for luxury fashion brands, mostly global luxury fashion brands. Um, These days, I wear many hats, and uh, one of the main ones is a strategic advisor for companies who might already be in China or who are hoping to enter the China market. And this really is a natural progression from someone who has operated a business in China um, because you've got that practical experience that, you know, it doesn't matter how many MBAs you do. It, it's just not the same as having a hands-on experience. I mean, I get lawyers and accountants calling me for advice for their clients. And that's not because they're not experts and professionals, because of course they are. It's more because sometimes they come across They come up against situations where they just have no answer. And so they're reaching out to entrepreneurs to say, you know, have you had this experience? And nine times out of ten you have. And you've got a solution that they, you know, they can't find in a document. Um, And then the other thing that I'm doing that's really exciting is I'm involved in the product development of um, some very new and innovative skincare products, as well as the packaging and the delivery of how they're going to enter the China and the Asia market, as well as homeware and home appliances.
0: Okay, well, that's perfect. I mean, we have... Uh, A large majority of our listenership is, you know, in the brand owner looking to expand. They're very interested in the markets. And we have a lot in the health and wellness space as well as the home appliances. That's that's amazing. So we're going to be diving into all of that. But I want to start with Suzar. Okay, so what were you aiming to do with Suzar?
1: Well when I started I had this intention to um, produce and design more residential home furniture because at that time there was really um, there was really no offer in terms of modern furniture as we know it today you, you could obviously get traditional Chinese furniture or you could even um, you could even get very high priced Italian furniture traditional Italian furniture that was all imported. And then, you know, at that time, the expats living there had the, the modern take on Chinese furniture, which was those sort of Chinese cabinets painted in red or blue. And there was there was really no other offer. So that was the original intent.
0: Talk us through a little bit of your, even your life there, what you were seeing and, and how you decided that you wanted to even take on that role. I mean, what drove you to be entrepreneurial in that role, in that way?
1: Okay. Well, I think because my background is, I mean, it's, uh, it's incredibly diverse. And there was one point in my career where I, you know, I, I, I'm, I've got a design background. I've got marketing and economics. And, you know, we'll talk about this more later. But then I went on to do health science. So, you know, when you're trying to pitch yourself to an employer and you say, well, I'm an economist and an artist, that doesn't fit in a, that doesn't fit in their, in their box. And you. so in, in a way I'm, you know, I always wanted to have my own business and Asia is a place where you can, you know, especially at that time in China, where you could be anybody you wanted to be, there was really nothing stopping you and, you know, being young and ambitious and being, you know, told that you wouldn't fit in a box. You just get pushed and driven into that way.
0: <laughs> Going back to Suzar, can I ask, how many of your clientele were in China or were Chinese local versus expats or foreigners?
1: Yeah, like in the beginning, uh, most of our clients were global clients. And of course, they had China stores. But in those, you know, back in those days, a lot of their um, stores were franchisees, And so the balance was maybe at that time in the beginning, 90% export and 10% China sales. Over time, that changed because the brands took back the franchise and they um, took over because they could see the luxury brand market was you know, about to take off. So they were all taking back their, their ownership in China. And then the balance, you know, it became, started to become more balanced. But one of the biggest differences between selling within China, I mean, you might be producing the same product Well, you were, and then 10% might go to China and 90% to the rest of the world. But the, the biggest key difference is selling domestically and selling for export. It's really two different business models. When you're selling for export, the rules are very clear. The customer places the order. If the order is FOB, which for the listeners that may or may not understand that, that means in, in, in simple terms, the goods are paid for. And then they go on the ship, and then off they go. So you, you know, when you're dealing when you're dealing in China, it's it suddenly becomes you've got this, uh, you know, whoever's working in the in the China entity. Well, I don't I don't want it paid before delivery. I want you to come and deliver. I want you to come and install. So they don't. That the model is totally different. So what I found, you know, as we as we got more and more sales in China, that I had to develop a completely different team just to deal with China. So the export market or the export model was running very smoothly. And it it was very, you know, there were seldom um, any issues to deal with. It was became quite streamlined. But every case in China was a new negotiation. It was a new terms of agreement.
0: I want to talk about IKEA, the impact of IKEA and the IKEA model versus what that's like in China, because it's very interesting, because even IKEA had to rearrange some of their models to exist and be successful in China for simple reasons like no tools, right? Or or trying to handle instructions or never having – they – you know, it, it wasn't something they had to not only deliver but but build on-site in the home for them um, when, they, when they bought. It just wasn't a part of their experience to date with furniture to have to construct or put it together when they get there.
1: Yeah, the IKEA model was um, very interesting, I think, for the consumer because they hadn't ever experienced anything like that. And, um, you know, I even remember buying the um, the paper tray and putting it in my office and watching my staff try to put it together. <laughs> um, and yet I am a furniture company, <laughs> more or less. And, yeah. And so that was, you know, that kind of thing is very was very interesting at that time.
0: I mean, it just really kind of puts a spotlight on the differences culturally and why you would have had to develop a new model and and really your own team there uh, to do things a lot differently. Can I ask you about sourcing materials? So the types of raw materials that you worked with, you know, some of the biggest, craziest, most impactful, you know, uh, projects that you worked on. Uh, can you speak to to some of that?
1: Yeah, look, sourcing when you're dealing with bespoke is is still quite challenging uh, because you know you're most of the manufacturers are used to dealing with mass production, so therefore they can buy their raw materials from it's all standardised. But when you when you get to when you get to a point where you're producing bespoke and small quantities, you're also looking for um, a manufacturer or a supplier who really understands and not just understands, but wants to do your production. The biggest challenge that we found in, in this space is, can you buy a limited amount of raw materials as opposed to one ton of something or 10 tons of something? And will the supplier actually take on board your order?
0: Okay. And what about projects that you did? Can you Can you highlight some of the more memorable projects that you were working on back then?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I, there was a sort of, there was an animal phase there for a while. We, that things like we made giant, real, real life-size elephants out of stainless steel, polished stainless steel sheets. Um, we met, we've made life-size sharks, giraffes, monkeys, um, then there was a standalone shop in the U.S. for uh, Alberta Ferretti where we completed the entire shop, including the facade and put everything into containers. So shop in the box. Uh, this was a pretty um, you know, daunting project in the beginning, but fortunately we were working with a very skilled architect. So this project went off very, very smoothly.
0: <laughs> so how did you source those partners that you were looking for, even a raw materials partner. How did you find them there?
1: Yeah, it, you know, the, it was it was very challenging in those days. You, you had to just, um, you know, you'd, you'd find one and then you'd find another. Um, now you can go and find, you know, many supply chain on Alibaba, visiting trade shows back then. It was more word of mouth or introduction through asking someone if they knew somebody. But I guess things like stainless steel, I would – Focus when I went into the factory to see who what age group or what maturity level the welder was at because you know when you're dealing with such precision the older let's say the older workers are the ones that were the skilled workers the younger ones hadn't developed the skill yet and it wasn't seen as a craft you know these kind of work workers were seen as not as craftspeople which they're which they're known for initially but as workers, there was no differentiation between sort of, you know, an unskilled labour worker compared to a highly skilled welder. And so that was really, I think, key for me to be able to evaluate in the factory by just using my eyes, who's sitting there, who's welding, how old are they, how much time are they spending welding that one particular, you know, piece of metal. And, you know, I fundamentally believe that that's how I was able to achieve the, the quality level of what was being produced in Italy.
0: How do you not only maintain but grow relationships with partners in that area of the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I still believe that you need to maintain a really close connection, and you know, I, you know, in these these days, it's not going to karaoke bars anymore or things like that. But you you need to be. Sharing the the burden, so to speak. You know, of course, maybe one of your suppliers also has an issue from their supplier. Something happened along the chain, which, you know, we would just blame the next person down the line naturally. But then if you dig a bit deeper and you understand what their problems are and be on their team, be on their side, I think that's what's also really helped. Rather than just complain to them, it's helping them to solve their problem as well. Uh, another factor is to you know to be respectful to again typical just normal Chinese culture give face give respect so many times I see clients being you know not so polite to the supplier well that's not going to get them anywhere Uh, and also payment terms you often see sort of overzealous accountants trying to hold on to the payment because they can just, you know, it looks good to their boss or whatever the reason, but actually it doesn't get you anywhere. Again, particularly with bespoke production or small quantity orders, if you pay um, in advance or even on time, you, you're gonna get a lot more respect.
0: Would you say then, and I'm back to your, your point about the karaoke, you know, the, the, the KTV, the big round dinner tables, the Joe, the gifts, has that all just gone away completely now?
1: Yeah, look, they're, they're not allowed. I mean, it's particularly in tier one and t- even tier two cities now, you're not really allowed to, to do that. You, you could, you know, you could get in, in big trouble for doing that kind of thing. If you go further out into sort of tier three, and now we have more numbers, <laughs> four, five. Mm-hmm. You're going to still see that kind of thing, and but it's done in a different way. There's still a, a, a you know, if I went to, I went to a tea plantation recently, and um, to do not to do with buying tea for drinking, but tea for organic skincare, and that was you know you know sort of tier three, tier four location. And there was still all of this sort of I had to do the ceremonies and the tea and hang around for hours and hours. And you're thinking, I need to get on with this. I've got things to do. But you have to still sit through it because it's it's their way of building the relationship with you. Uh,
0: What about uh, tactics of negotiation? So I'm assuming there is still some wiggle room out there. You're still negotiating whether it comes to price Or payment terms or delivery timelines or even more of some of the teeth that are in the contract, such as if something isn't delivered or is delivered damaged or what is the, you know, what do we do in that instance and who's responsible? Negotiating all of those terms. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it's like to negotiate with partners in that area of the world? And then, you know, what are your tips and some of the tactics that you use that you want to pass along to our listeners?
1: Look, I think the, the number one um, lesson or, or rule for me is that you, you must understand that everything is a negotiation. That's number one. And number two, <laughs> negotiations and uh, negotiations are a, are a good thing because if there's no negotiation, there's no deal. And what I've o- also often seen is People think they're negotiating, but actually they're just giving, give me black or give me white. And actually that's just a threat. That's not a negotiation. And if you threaten somebody, they're just going to walk away. Um, So always be prepared and ready to give something to get something. You must give something. And it doesn't mean that when you walk out of the negotiation that it's going to be you're going to get 50% and I'm going to get 50%. You know, maybe I'm only going to get 10 and you're going to get 90%. But as long as you're as long as you show that you're open to negotiate and you're going to give something, then you can always come back to the table. I think we have to be careful not to close the table. We have to always keep it open.
0: Well, I mean, uh, does that mean we want to start high because we know where we (laughs) want to be? So we we start somewhere else. And, and, And also, okay. so that question. But also, I know that there is a myth an urban myth that they that especially in china they really like to feel like they're getting a good deal right and that mm. you do want to leave them believing that they are getting a good deal and and in a way that is showing them face are there tactics at play or is that really just honest business dealings
1: Uh, look, I think that there probably would be a few things on your list that you don't really want, or you don't really mind if you lose. (laughs) Um, so there is some truth to that, that, that you, that you need to come in a little bit high, but on the other hand, once you have the relation, once you are more familiar in that relationship, that partner will know that you, you know that you're over-exaggerating So, because you've got to know each other better and there's more trust, but probably in the beginning. But on the other hand, you you also can't go too high because that supplier or the person that you're dealing with might just go too hard, don't want to deal with you. Um, So, yeah, there's a a balance that you need to achieve.
0: Okay, speed round. Are they tough, are they fair, or are they both or neither? I think – Tough and fair. Tough and fair. They're both. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's move on to talking about the health and wellness sector, okay? So first thing, paint us a picture of what the health and wellness personal care industry looks like here, spring 2023. What does it look like in, in Asia Pacific or China specifically
1: Okay, well, I think that what we're seeing is a repackaging and a rebranding of um, what the Chinese elders have been practising for centuries. You know, when you go into a park in China, they're, they're doing Tai Chi or they're ballroom dancing. Now the younger generation have repackaged that into yoga and, and, and Pilates, You know, the fundamentals are still there where they were before. It's about being healthy, being agile, being flexible. Aren't they all the same thing? (sighs) I mean, sometimes I even think the youngsters think that they invented this whole be healthy, be flexible. But when you look back in history, it's always been there. And I think it, it missed a few generations because Chinese were influenced by Western fast food and they were influenced by... Western medicine, giving you a quick fix. So I see what I see now is that more people are becoming um, aware of preventative medicine again, even though maybe they think it, it's a new thing, but it's actually not.
0: Would you say that there is a growing appetite, a much larger appetite, awareness, knowledge, driving the appetite for Taking care of oneself, even from, you know, outside body and inside body. How has that progressed in the time that you've been in the industry? How has that grown?
1: Oh, absolutely. In leaps and bounds. I remember that when I first came to China and I was jogging, I was like some outside. I was like some kind of alien. You know, you would be... Jogging around the street and people would just stop and stare at you. And now, if you go out, now when you walk outside, there's people jogging at all times of the day or night. It's it's not even it's it's not sort of a, a strange occurrence anymore. It's everywhere. And things like gyms and yoga studios, weights, boxing, all these kind of things are absolutely everywhere. So I I think that it's going to go um really grow rapidly because of the awareness of health and also preventative health, looking after yourself because you don't want to get sick and you want to stay young and youthful. A lot to do with the recognition that looking after your internal body will make you look better.
0: So how does one start to build and grow a brand in the health and wellness space? Where are the places and the platforms and the medias, and where do you want to be? And what do you want to be doing? What do you want to be activating to be successful in that area of the world?
1: Hmm. That's a very big question, Todd.
0: <laughs> I know. It's an entire what is your entire marketing plan in three minutes, please? No. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think because it's changed, and I guess the reason that I asked that and was inspired to bring that up was I started thinking about influencers and micro and micro influencers and KOLs and KOCs and Xiao Hong and, and and the rest of everything that you know that, that's over there. It's it's what the US and the rest and the West and North America that's what they all know on steroids over there. Just tease out some of the activities and, and some of the platforms that consumers are going to and paying attention to right now.
1: Look in terms of um you know, social marketing. There's obviously you know many, many different channels of which um, I, I'm not an expert in. But if I was advising some of my clients that are entrepreneurs or startups, and maybe they don't have a lot of, you know, their funding is not that great yet, and they're just testing the waters, I would still, I would still encourage them to do a little bit of stunt marketing. You know, because, um, because you you've got people you know i think you probably know Anfu Lu in shanghai this this is um you know it, every weekend it is absolutely packed jam full of people making social media posts about themselves about their companies about everything about lifestyle and you know i encourage my clients to just sort of do a little bit of a pop-up informal pop-up on Anfu fulu get some get some frenzy a marketing frenzy going and you'd be surprised with, uh, that's really you know no budget stunt marketing you'd be surprised how many followers you can get in one day so so there's there's small things you can do I'm an, again I'm an entrepreneur I started a company without external finance no one backed me um, that's what that's how I that's where I come from I would highly encourage them to try any kind of stunt marketing because you have the environment to do it and you have the audience um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, blah. <laughs> you have yeah. the audience behind you to, to really, you know, get some traction on
0: that. Fingers crossed you could ever get something to, to go viral in China. Yeah. You've got it made. You've got it made, right? Yeah. And for listeners, and I, I, I do feel like I have to translate what lu" means because Lu in Mandarin, that's road. Right. And so Anfu Lu uh, is just a very, very high trafficked, very high end, uh, where a lot of brands are. They, you know, it's 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 a bit of a shopping street, is it not? I mean, it, you know, it, that's where a lot of brands are. Yeah, right in China. Yeah, so yeah, when Susan says Anfu Lu, that's. That She's just, yeah, it's it's a bit of a cheat code on just talking about this is the the area, the spot of Shanghai where you really want to be doing something pop up because there's just so much foot traffic. Crystal ball time. Talking about the next three to five years, obviously, this entire industry has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, I don't think anywhere in the world could it be hotter, more or less just because the floor was so much lower. They had so much further to come. So that's why we've just seen the growth rates um, that we've seen and then continue to see because it has so much farther to go. But what do you see as far as trends and where the sector is going over the next three to five years?
1: Yeah, the wellness movement is is really an enormous growth sector. So anything from, um, you know, new health foods, vegan, gluten free products, private health clinics, uh, as we would know them, um, anything to do with traditional preventative health, anti-ageing, active wear, all things organic, all to do with this wellness, better health, uh, lifestyle, the government educating the population on wellness, even incentivising employees to, to make sure that they're their teams are healthier, we're going to see a lot more of that.
0: Yeah, I think you've talked about packaging as well as has advanced. I'm curious about, and I I mentioned packaging because we have seen some advancements um, in packaging and what's on packaging and what they're representing. We've seen this shift to biodegradable, non-GMO animal-friendly, good for the planet, organic. This has been a theme that has been growing and growing for over a decade in in the Western world. Is this similar in Asia and in China?
1: Yeah, look, it definitely definitely is. As as long as that packaging is still, you know, as we would say, Instagrammable, as long as it, it... they're really on board with all of that, but it's, the, the key is still it's got to look good. It's, you know, obviously in, in any kind of, in any sort of products, it's only, the product is only half the, half the value. It's how does it look? How, do, how does it feel when I touch the package? Does it make me feel comfortable? What's in the, what's in the package or what's in the bottle? Yeah, it's really just as important as the outside. is just as important as the inside.
0: Do you or do you recommend, is there any leading indicators from the rest of the world that can possibly impact China or is China now the leading indicator? If I were to look back 20 years ago, I think China took a lot of fashion leading indicators from Korea and Japan, first and foremost, right? And they were starting to kind of lean on uh, and you'd, you'd see. You'd see some patchwork uh, of uh, attempts that were clearly based on you know either some of the Japanese or the or the Korean kind of fashion styles or whatever Is there anywhere yeah. is there anywhere that China is still taking any leads from on what they want to do in that health and wellness space or is China now just looking inward and they are their own leading indicator?
1: Oh I think they're still taking lead on I would say more on raw materials for you know if you're talking about organic organic skincare they're definitely taking lead from even places like Australia and France the UK for the for the raw materials and they're really fast tracking themselves I suppose in, in how to either grow those plants for example, by themselves, or how to get those raw materials from other countries and bring them back and process them in China. But um, fundamentally, I think it won't be long before they'll be able to produce, you know, many of these things by themselves. And I guess it's just really a trust factor that they have to make the Chinese people themselves trust the supply chain in China, because currently there's, you know, the trust level isn't quite there. You know, is this product real? Um, Is the quality level really the same as it is in Europe or Australia or New Zealand? Um, And that's, that will take a little bit more time, but finally I think they'll get there.
0: (laughs) It's almost generational, right? Like 15 years ago, they were, anything that came to baby, even, you know, formula and whatnot, that was all coming from Japan. Or you know, South Korea or or Australia, or somewhere else, right? There was just and it was a trust thing. and I think when it comes to trust, um, that that seems to be almost generational when it's you know now I think the younger generation, the twenty somethings now, they are probably starting to have they they would have the most trust in anything China made that has ever existed in China's lifetime over the last fifty years. Um, for sure. Um, but but yes, it is it is I, I completely agree that I think it is generational and it is probably, you know, depends on on the product, too. I think some different some product categories are probably further ahead on having established a lot of trust. And that could come from just the materials that are used or what the product is and how much of a trust level do you even need to have uh, or want to have in that specific category. But um, I'll let you comment on that one more time.
1: Well, I think it's also about price point too. If, if someone's, um, you know, if it, if it goes below a certain price point, then it, I think that they don't, you know, the trust factor isn't as serious. Like, okay, I'm going to spend 70 renminbi or, you know, let's say 10 US dollars to buy, a small hand cream or something. They, they won't be as worried about where the raw material supply came from. Mm. But if they're going to spend a hundred US dollars then you know you are going to think about it a lot more. So really I think that just comes to the price point.
0: I want to wrap up the conversation. Going back into the furniture and the home decor space. Now, let's start a little bit with what's hot in China right now. Are they still looking for life-size elephants and giraffes, or you know what? What? What is kind of hot there right now, and what is driving these trends?
1: Yeah, well, you've got they're looking for things that are obviously smaller um, than an elephant. You often see. You often see these, you know, social media people are posting and they might be in their apartment and it's got a lot of soft furnishings or floor lamps, things that are things that are smaller, things that are easier to move around and it makes their backdrop look really cool. And you know, even collaborations with the furniture that's got a collaboration with a famous fashion designer or or a famous Chinese artist, for that matter, because Chinese, Japanese, Korean artists are, you know, a really hot thing, whether that's on um, a textile or whether that's, you know, on, on a cushion or or a T-shirt. You know, they're, they're quite hot on designer artists. Um, we've still got that sort of influence of the Scandinavian slimline furniture that's, you know, becoming more and more popular because they're enjoying the, you know, the lightness of, of that kind of style in their apartments.
0: How important is that apartment living that is predominant in pretty much any of those, those first three numbers, the tier one, tier two, even tier three, because it is so much about high rise and apartment style living in very dense Areas of of population. How much does that impact that industry?
1: Yeah, I think things are changing quite a lot. Um, particularly, you know, they're they're looking for furniture that's got a function as well. So, you know, I don't know a bed frame with storage underneath it. They may not have had that before, but you know, if we go back to IKEA again, you've got you've got really good solutions now that they're picking up on because the, the spaces are small, but they want them to look uncluttered. Um, so they're they're opting for these kind of solutions i mean you can take something like the you know the kitchen for example a decade ago nobody would have had an open kitchen i mean the kitchen was a place where you had to have it closed the only people that were in the kitchen were, was the person cooking and if they had a, a maid the maid to clean up and then you know a, a huge extraction fan a big wok but you, you you see you see that completely changing there isn't you know they've gone the, the Western sort of style open kitchen because the eating habits have changed. You don't need to cook anymore because you can call a delivery guy to deliver your dinner and it comes in ten minutes. So they don't need to to cook like they did before. Uh, they can use the kitchen bench as their dining room table as well. So this kind of thing has totally changed um, since the last ten years.
0: What about the impact of storage? I think that yeah. They, they don't have a garage that I know of. I mean, they have a huge garage where everybody parks underneath and then, you know, goes up. There's kind of a lack of it's smaller. It's condensed. There's not as much storage. People don't live, in, you know, as much as it has become a consumer society, it still doesn't hold a candle to what we might see in the quote unquote kind of U.S of just more stuff, more stuff. And, you know, you see storage unit and self-storage going on, going through the roof. How does that impact that industry of, of you know, furniture and, and home decor?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been into, you know, many, many Chinese homes, of course, over the years. And I think that just really depends on like what the person, you know, what the person's lifestyle habits are and how many family, extended family members that they're actually living with. Um, because perhaps the parents have another apartment somewhere else and they live there sometimes with the kids and the grandkids. So the, the stuff <laughs> might be spread over more than one apartment. But I, I, think, I think younger people are much better at being uncluttered and have just have less stuff.
0: You know, I, I mean, I, I'm thinking of even my parents' house where I grew up where there was an entire bedroom that became a storage closet and the only things that it had in there was christmas decorations Easter decorations, Halloween decorations, yeah. Thanksgiving decorations. We had our, our thematic, you know, well, it's fall. We need to get out the yellow throw pillows and the brown and then spring, you know, we had and it was the indoor and it was the outdoor and it was the Christmas lights and the tree. I mean, we needed an entire, you know, 40 foot container just for stuff of of just, you know, changing the way the house looked due to the date on the calendar That. Probably that culture doesn't really exist over there, or does it?
1: Uh, not so much, actually. I, I think you know, obviously, you've got Chinese a year, and people probably keep a few of their, you know, lanterns, but for that, but not so much, not so much as the US.
0: Right. So, if you're in the business of you know the thematic home decor, China still has a ways to go before you're entering that market uh, with your 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 Thanksgiving decor, right?
1: Well, I mean, Chris, of course, things like Christmas have, have been um, taken on board pretty well in the last few years. And, you know, because that's a retail, um, a retail, yeah.
0: Not to be missed. Retail, or, yeah, extravagant. Not to be missed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's retail. So so all of the department stores and, and, and brands are, are jumping on board for any, any kind of opportunity, whether it's Western or Chinese, to try to get more sales.
0: One last question. It's a topic I have, I'm so proud of myself. I've avoided it this entire episode so far. And, ah. and within, within, within episodes from now, I will have eradicated it. But may I ask you, what was the impact of COVID? I'm almost thinking of the kitchen specifically, but what yeah. was the impact of COVID on that, on that industry?
1: Yeah, well, actually, um, talking, we'll just go to the kitchen question first. My my friends and I all became very good at cooking Chinese vegetables <laughs> because we were stuck inside and that's what the government was delivering to us. Um, anyway, moving on to a more serious note. Yeah, it, it did have a big impact, and but actually at the same time, um, in terms of um, what, what Suzha was going through, we... Our clients were all going digital before COVID anyway, so we had already transformed the business model to other things, you know, sort of approaching COVID anyway. I think that the people um, did redo their houses and, you know, small things to their apartment during COVID because they were stuck inside and they were bored and they got sick of looking at the same layout of their furniture. I think in some ways it inspired people to, like, learn and love their home more. And I, I believe that the furniture, the home furniture market really has got, um you know, it's, it's doing, it's picked up very quickly and is going to be explosive, just like the skincare and the food industries in China. Home furnishings has got a huge market ahead of it in China because of COVID and people's experiences living in the home for so long.
0: <laughs> well, that was kind of my wrap up question was again, crystal ball time. Where do you see that home and house space going over the next three to five years.
1: Yeah, any, anyone that's sort of involved in this industry, uh, I think if you're selling into, if you're, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're importing or, or designing and producing in China, but because there's always a market for luxury or, you know, high spend items compared to your IKEA level or even, you know, that sort of price point. I think those kind of industries are going to continue to grow. There's a lot of, there's still a lot of people with, you know, spendable income to improve their lifestyles. So, That industry is definitely worth pursuing as is anything to do with wellness, food and lifestyle.
0: As a reminder for everybody who is watching us on YouTube, don't forget that we have the Straight Audio podcast on all the podcast channels like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the rest. And for those of you who are just listening to us audio only, we also have the YouTube version where you can come and see Susan and I on video. Uh, But for now, Susan, thank you very, very much for being on the show. We really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you very much, Todd. It was great to chat with you.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with.